From KIOS in Omaha and Exarbon Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. On today's show, we continue our look into the congressional candidates who want to represent you in the federal government leading up to Nebraska's primary on May 12th. This week, I have a conversation with congressional candidate Kara Eastman, who is running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. I'm proud to say that I'm going to fight and work on behalf of the residents of CD2, not on behalf of the large corporations who frankly don't need my voice. Eastman speaks about her work as CEO of the Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance before choosing to run for Congress in 2018 and again in 2020, as well as the decision she made to reject corporate PAC money throughout her campaign. After a break, stick around for my conversation with Carr Eastman, right here on Riverside Chats. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment to check out Stitcher. Those of you listening on Stitcher already get why. For those of you who don't, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android users and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, and even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription service called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and you are about to listen to a conversation that I had with congressional candidate Kara Eastman, who is currently running against Don Bacon for Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. This is part of a series that we've been doing here on Riverside Chats to help you get to know the people who want to represent you. Previously, I've spoken with Don Bacon as well as Ann Ashford, who is currently in the same primary as Kara Eastman. So if you're interested in looking back at the backlog to have a sense of who everyone is running against, we have conversations with most of the people who are in the race right now. The idea is to have candidates from both sides of the aisle tell you about themselves as humans rather than just repeating talking points. So please enjoy my conversation right now with Kara Eastman. Uh, Terry Gross, they they installed the whole stuff in her house so she can do it, but uh, they did not offer that to me, <laughs> NPR. So uh, I hate that's you know like, Terry Gross gets everything. Yeah, well she's good. She's she's better than <laughs> I am. So that's, I'm not complaining really. Um, but okay, uh, so you at this point everything is online, right? Yeah, everything. Well, we are delivering yard signs. Okay, so yeah. we're we're. It's funny because when I think about the way we started and how early we started campaigning and um, we made a full pass at the district at the doors. And now I am incredibly glad we did it and grateful to my team for having the foresight to do that because we're able then to go out, deliver yard signs to people. So, um, so there's a lot of support in the community. And so I'm excited about that. We, uh, we started this weekend. Uh, we created a program called kids for car and we made these little bags with, coloring sheet and stickers and a little bouncy ball and some crayons. And so uh, my deputy campaign manager and my husband and daughter and I went out yesterday and 
with the little caravan trailer that we have. So we were like a little tiny parade <laughs> driving around the district, handing out bags. And we were all over the district. I was really actually so excited to see how many people reached out saying they wanted these bags. And we were everywhere. I mean, we were in Bennington, Ralston, Millard, Papillion, East Omaha, South Omaha. Like it was great. So, um, and then a lot of our stuff is online. We're doing, um, virtual events. We're doing Ask Me Anythings, a lot of video stuff, just trying to keep the momentum of the campaign going. Yeah. And I mean, you've been campaigning for a while. I mean, you announced the candidacy. <laughs> it was like as soon as you could, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have really been campa- campaigning straight for about three years. That's right. I mean, yeah, because there's the previous right. uh, yeah, the previous campaign as well. So, okay. So to get a sense of the context here. So I remember last time I talked, it's kind of funny. I, for some reason I thought like, okay, I think she lives in Lincoln. I can't remember. And you were like, no, I live like, I live like right here. Yeah. I'm around all the time. Since then, I feel like I've seen you very often just like walking around Benson, Dundee, <laughs> anywhere. And I feel like I felt so dumb after that. Um, but so were you, I can't remember, were you born in Omaha? I was not born here. I was born in Chicago. Born, okay, that's and, right. Yeah, and uh, and then we chose to move to Omaha about 14 years ago. My husband is the director of Latin American Studies and a history professor at Creighton. So we moved here for his job, and Sabina was about five when we moved, and uh, I was at that time also hired to start Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance. So. We had some friends that were from Omaha who told us we would love Dundee, and so we moved to Dundee and uh, lived there for about 13 years. And then when our daughter Sabina went to college last fall, we sold our house and downsized and moved to a small apartment in the in the old market, which we're, we're happy we did, but it's also a strange time to have downsized now that our daughter has returned home and <laughs> it's just the three of us in there. That's got to be cozy though, right? It's pretty cozy. We each have our own respective jobs. I'm making a lot of phone calls. My husband's online teaching and our daughter is online learning. So <laughs> it's uh, there's a lot of activity going on in that small apartment, but uh, it's pretty fun. So, okay, when you were growing up in Chicago, was it a, was it a political family? No, not at all. My, my parents divorced when I was a baby and it was just me and my mom growing up. And I don't remember my mother ever talking about politics. She was, she would talk about um, more like values stuff about what was right or what what she viewed as wrong. But I recently learned that my father, who I I didn't really know that well growing up because he wasn't around, but um, at one point had considered leaving his career to run Bobby Kennedy's campaign in Illinois. Wow! Um, right before he got shot, and so uh, my my half brother told me uh, right when I decided to run that my my father was really involved in politics, but I never really knew that because I didn't spend much time with my dad when I was a kid. So that's I mean that's a pretty prestigious offer, right? Yeah. So it was it was uh, there. I guess yes. Yeah, somehow that he had that on the table that that he was going to leave his life and <laughs> and do that, but and then obviously unfortunately things didn't work out. So you've got, that's kind of a, maybe it's in the blood somehow. I don't know. Maybe. I think for me, it was the reasons. I mean, there are so many reasons I I decided to do this, but, and I, in higher, you know, going into higher politics and running for political office was not in my, in my trajectory. I have a degree in clinical social work, but I feel very lucky to have the experience and my worldview framed by all of the work that I've done in nonprofit work serving clients who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, but mostly people living in poverty, mostly people who are, you know, are immigrants to the country or single um, moms in Omaha who are living in substandard housing or housing that just has lead in it, which most of us live in it. If we live in an older home, there's lead in our homes here. 
Um, and so I feel very lucky that when when I look at the way that the government runs and policies that politicians are putting forward, I think about those clients first. And I know so many people in Omaha who are working two or three jobs to put food on the table, who do live in horrible houses and especially rental properties that are in disarray or who have no access to public transportation. And, and so many families who are like one minor disaster, and obviously with the coronavirus, that brings it to a new level, but even just a car breakdown or an injury, one little disaster that can disrupt your entire family's economic structure. Right. What was the draw for you to do social work to begin with? I, I have known, I mean, when I was 10 years old, we have those little sheets of paper that you get when you go to, when you're in grade school, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always wrote things like psychiatrist, psychologist, help, you know, somebody who's going to help people. When I was 16, I told my best friend, I just wanted to get a van and drive around and give things to homeless people. And she was like, well, that's stupid. You'll never make any money doing that. <laughs> um, so I, I always knew that I wanted to do some sort of helping profession, mostly because I like to solve problems. And it, when I went to college, I studied sociology. And there was a social worker who came to our campus and started talking to us about the work that social workers could do in solving problems for individuals, for communities, for families. And I thought, that's exactly what I want to do. And so uh, when I, I went and got my master's in clinical social work, my original I, you know, path was that I thought I would be a therapist or a counselor, and then eventually started getting into administrative positions. So my first job out of graduate school, I was hired to start a domestic violence program from scratch uh, within a nonprofit organization. And it, it was just from there that I loved program development creating, you know, finding solutions to problems. So I remember that job. I was cold calling victims of domestic violence and offering them court advocacy and counseling. It's a really hard sell yeah. for people who have just gone through that horrible process. And, um, and I learned how to convince them that I could help them and then how to develop that program working with the sheriff's department and the police department and the court system. And, um, and so since then, it's really all I've been doing for 20 years, running, starting, uh, developing and growing nonprofits. So it seems like you've had kind of a, a incredible sense of empathy since you were young, right? The whole let's go get a van and give things to homeless people it comes from. I mean, like you you feel bad and you want to help, right? Yeah, I think you know, growing up with a single mom who struggled in a lot of ways, seeing members of my family who struggled with addiction um, or mental health issues, I think I always just wanted to be there and, and do what I could to to help. But um, for me, what I like about social work in particular is that it's not just about giving things to people. And I think it's so funny when people are like, oh, you know, that's that's what that's what Democrats want to do. They just want to give people stuff. I don't want to give anybody anything. I actually believe in empowering people to give themselves what they need. And that's what social workers do. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess what I mean is you, you start with that sense of like, well, if I could get the van, maybe I'd solve the problem. But then as you get into it, you realize the power structures that create the problems. And then exactly. that seems like there's an easy jump actually from that to politics, right? Because you can actually impact what are the structures that build the world that we have. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I mean, I say we, I think we need more social workers in elected office, but we also just need good social workers in elected office. Well, and so the, the, when you're saying people criticize saying, you know, you just want to give everything away, you've got that, you've got you're being called comrade in every, you know, tweet that the Republican Party is posting. <laughs> right. And uh, like there, I, I saw yesterday, I don't know if you, maybe last week sometime, there's something about like 
they were calling something you said rabid and they were saying like her they were they were criticizing hyper political or hyper partisan comments while calling what you said rabid and calling you comrade and i just thought there's such a disconnect going on here i don't even know yes. where to start with it exactly it's a little hypocritical <laughs> well but so as far as i mean let's just let the cat out of the bag i know we talked about it a little bit a year ago but the the criticism of increasing social programs versus socialism and what those words mean uh where where do you fall on that at this point <laughs> well it it's interesting because the the pandemic that we're all experiencing right now has changed a lot of this narrative right because the the the, the government just passed an incredibly socialist bill if you want to call it that and and yet and, and 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 so I imagine the Republicans will say, well, this is a crisis. Well, I talk to people all the time in Omaha who are in crisis right. and who need those social safety nets to help them out or who have been set up to fail by a, a governmental system that favors the very wealthy and large corporations over them. So I don't I don't believe in in just blanket statements about the government. It's not that we need big or small government. It's it's we need effective, efficient government. And it's not always about expanding programs. I've been involved in government programs in Omaha that aren't successful. And I I was I was advocating to try to fix them and to try to make them better and to reallocate resources when it came to the way that the EPA was handling the lead poisoning um, issue and, and the soil contamination issue here or the way the Department of Energy had invested in some programs here. So I've been involved on the ground here in government programs, seen where they succeed and where they fail. And so to me, it's really about creating these programs and understanding who they're meant to serve, understanding how to market these programs to people who need them, and then also where government needs to scale back. And so, I mean, it's it's a practical perspective, right? You're not, I mean, your, your idea is like, how can we make it run better? Absolutely. And that's, that's why I've been put in charge of starting or, or saving nonprofits is because I do think I see things from a practical perspective and, and I'm incredibly pragmatic when it comes to creating these solutions. But I also think that we need candidates and we need politicians to be putting forth bold solutions to some of our most critical problems. And, and the pandemic has brought a number of these to light. Like, we should have been better prepared for this. We are going to need a bold solution for the aftermath for this because many of us will be okay. Small business owners are not going to be okay. The workers who've been displaced because of it are not going to be okay. People, low-income families, I, what are they, I mean, what are we doing? You know, and what, and who's going to be able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps right now? Well, the very wealthy. And the, the big corporations that are still getting government bailouts, they're all going to be fine. I had Don Bacon on the show, and he defined socialism as exclusively sort of the Marxist, either Soviet Union or straight Marxism from, you know, Marx himself. He did not think, uh, he ta we talked about Nordic countries, basically, because I, what I, the point I was trying to make was I feel like a lot of the things that are being labeled socialism, whether we want to call them that or not, are more sort of like... How can we model the way that, say, like Norway's social wealth fund works or social programs in those sorts of countries? How can those work? And he said that those are capitalist. Those are 100 percent capitalist. Socialism is entirely Marxism. I don't know where you land as far as the definition of the word or whether you even would consider yourself one. But do you agree with that basic sentiment that he's portraying where it's like 
Nordic countries aren't socialist. Uh, Canada is not really socialist. They may have Medicare for all. They may have a uh, very uh, high concentration of government sort of control over wealth in the country. But it's not socialism if it's not straight Marxism. Do you agree oh, with that? Well, then thank you, Congressman Bacon, because you continue <laughs> to call me a socialist. And clearly I'm not because I'm not advocating for a government takeover uh, or a Marxist perspective on anything. I'm not a socialist. I am a Democrat. I think sometimes in Nebraska we forget what one looks like. And so it's easy to label somebody as as something else. But um, the reality and it doesn't matter what we call this stuff, right? The reality is we're the only industrialized nation that doesn't have a universal health care system. And who is suffering because of it? Well, it's not people who've had government-funded health care their whole life like Don Bacon. It's it's regular working families. It's individuals. It's, it's people in our country who are suffering. It's people like my mother who couldn't afford her $2,500 pill despite the fact that she had Medicare. So it's time to stop the labeling and fear mongering that's happening and really just start talking about health care policy. And I'm really happy that during the Democratic debates for, for the presidential race, the Democrats were having robust policy debates over health care in this country. And the reality is they're not all that far apart. I think right now people are saying, oh, like, you know. Biden's policy and Bernie's policies are so different. They're, they're not that far apart. But what are what are far apart are the Democratic proposals and the Republican proposals to do what? Take away health care with no viable plan to replace it. And health care was sort of what got you into politics to begin with, right? It's the it's the decision. It's the reason I decided to run initially was because of my mom and my mom's own health care issue. Um, being having been diagnosed for the fifth time with cancer and then prescribed a $2,500 pill she couldn't afford. And, and then recognizing the fact that I've worked in, the health, in health in one form or another for, for most of my career and, and just how broken our healthcare system and who it favors. And, ev- and, and I've gotten even more passionate about this idea of coupling uh, healthcare with employment because when I ran Omaha Healthy Kids Alliance, we were spending about $40,000 a year to provide health care for our employees. Happy to do it. It's the right thing to do. But imagine how hard it is for a nonprofit CEO to raise that money. It's hard enough to raise money if you're in a nonprofit anyway. And then how many donors actually want to fund health care for your employees? Not too many. They want to fund the programs that you're supposed to be doing. But then we get into all of these ways that the commingling of healthcare with employment hurts our country. It it makes us less competitive globally. It makes it difficult for people to move career from you know for a move the, for a different job, change careers. Um, it inhibits innovation. It actually, I mean, I've talked to so many business owners in the district who say the amount of money they're spending on healthcare actually makes it difficult for them to be profitable. That's not the American dream. That's not exactly entrepreneurialism. Um, and and there, there needs to be a different way of doing this. When we look at now with the coronavirus, how many people are not accessing health care um, because they can't afford it or they're afraid to, that brings it even more to light. Is it weird to you that it's politicized in general, the question of whether you have a right to health care regardless of how much money you have in your bank account? It, it seems crazy to me, and I think it's particular for a group. And, and look, not all 535 members of Congress are against universal health care system, but for any of them who is granted health care 
through their job or for somebody like Congressman Bacon, who has had government subsidized health care his entire career, it seems incredibly hypocritical to then say other people don't deserve the same thing when there are other people working and they don't have the luxury of having employer sponsored health care because maybe their employer doesn't doesn't give it or, or can't afford to. Um, so I think that it's a strange thing to add into politics especially because I hear from doctors who feel like they want the control to be able to prescribe medicine, to be able to practice healthcare, to follow their Hippocratic Oath. Um, they want that control. They, they don't want to be told by an insurance company what they can and can't do. So if we really wanted true freedom, true choice in the United States of America, we would stop the system that we have that's not based on free market policy practices. We would actually have a free market system where you choose your healthcare provider based on quality of care, based on access. Um, and that, that is actually a free market system. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways we don't have a free market and it comes up a lot as if we're protecting the free market. Um, but you would argue then a lot of your policies then are actually trying to push more toward a free market. Absolutely. I don't, I, I'm not going to, I don't believe in creating policies that, especially around healthcare right now, that cost the federal government any more money than we're already spending. We are projected to continue to spend an increase of 5% over the next decade in healthcare so that we get to a point where 23% of our GDP is on healthcare. And yet our outcomes are some of the poorest in the world. That is stupid. <laughs> and, and, and we need a different system. So I'm never going to do anything where people end up paying more. I'm not going to do anything that costs the federal government more. I'm not going to do it. I don't, I don't support any policy that displaces insurance employees without providing some sort of plan for them. And, and I'm also not going to do anything that jeopardizes the, the hard work that union members have done to negotiate their health care. The money that then they wouldn't have to be spending on healthcare. That money needs to go into their pockets, not the pockets of, of CEOs of corporations. So how do you, how do you what steps do you need to take then to get to a system that's more functional? Well, luckily we have a bill right now out there. Pramila Jayapal, a congresswoman from Seattle, has sponsored uh, HR 1384, which is the Medicare for All Act, and it, it it lays out the plan right there. And and look. Any, any bill that comes in before Congress is going to be, it's going to change over time. There's going to be compromises made. But, but I think it's exciting to think about getting into Congress this year um, or winning the election in November and then getting in next year and actually starting to work on this. I want to go to Congress to work on health care so that nobody has to go through what my mom went through, so that nobody has to go through what so many people are going to be going through right now, which is that they went and accessed health care during a pandemic and they came out with a bill that they can't afford to pay. And so when you first decided to run, you were kind of coming from the outside. I mean, uh, some people, when they come from a position of power, just having a lot of wealth already, they're immediately like, there's almost like a question with certain wealthy people where it's like, oh, you're going to run for office ever? Whereas a lot of other people who don't start from a certain privilege, it feels sort of like this insurmountable thing that it's like, I, how can I even climb this mountain of getting into Congress? How do I figure out how to do that? How do I get enough money to make you know the candidacy actually matter? You were able to figure that out. How did you get to that point? What was the process? <laughs> I guess that's where my problem-solving skills come into play. It, I, part of it was naivete. I didn't realize that the only measure of worth for a candidate would be how much money you could raise. And I come from a fundraising background. My finance director did too. but but And so that helps. 
But, uh, I mean, the first thing people tell you when you decide to run is like, okay, ask your friends and family for money and get out your Rolodex, whatever that is. And (laughs) we did that. And and my friends and family were very generous with those $25, $50 donations. But um, it was hard work. And it, it still is, to be honest. I mean, we spend a lot of time making phone calls. And this is one of one of the biggest kind of travesties about American politics right now. So I don't know how many people actually know how all of this works, but there's there's the individual fundraising that a that a candidate has to do. But usually what happens is candidates get funding from corporate PACs. A PAC is a political action committee. And and this happens for Democrats and Republicans. Not as many Democrats are, are doing it anymore, and that's good. I don't see too many Republicans who are rejecting corporate PAC money. They should. Everybody, anybody who's running should actually not be taking corporate PAC money. But the, the way it, it works is lobbyists and corporations funnel all these money, this money into political campaigns. And then, shockingly, you get a congressman, uh, let's say Congressman Bacon, just as an example, who... <laughs> get money from the corporation, let's say a pharmaceutical company, and then when it comes time to take a vote, says, nope, I'm not going to vote to lower prescription drugs. Shocking. And and this is how our system is set up. So in the beginning, we decided we're not going to take corporate PAC money. And I'm glad I made that decision. I was actually able to outraise Congressman Bacon in 2018 without corporate PAC money. And we rely on small dollar donations. We have donations from all over the country, although the majority of our funding you know, we get more money from Nebraska than any other state, but I'm proud to have those that support and those donations from all over and proud to say that I'm going to fight and work on behalf of the residents of CD2, not on behalf of the large corporations who frankly don't need my voice. That's It's not that I'm anti-business. I'm all in favor of, of a capitalist society that works for everybody. Stay tuned for more of my conversation with Kara Eastman after this quick break. From Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made Over America, the podcast that's part history and culture and part science, and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing. I am not from the Midwest, so in every episode, I do the research and then I sit down with someone who is from here, and together we explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm talking with Kara Eastman, who is currently running to represent Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. Are we even really looking at an ideological clash of two sides, or are we just seeing a lot of corporate interests sometimes clashing with each other? It's a great question, and, and nobody knows the real answer to that. But but when we look at, I mean, the if we could say there's something that good that has come out of the Trump administration, all this stuff is out there for us to see right now. We can see where... This president and his family are making a lot of money off of his being president or where the people that he surrounds himself get appointed to positions, not because they have any level of expertise or that they're qualified, but rather because of some sort of business transaction or something happening. So, you know, it, I, I guess there's transparency in what's happening, but it, but I think it, it has led to um, people being so disillusioned by our political system 
And I think it's led to voter suppression. I think it, especially on the Democratic side, that the the party, you know, the, de- the Democratic Party was supposed to be the party of people. And as more and more corporate Democrats have taken over the party, I think voters have just become pretty um, apathetic and disgusted by what they're seeing. And so it's taking some time, but I think we can turn it around. And so, I mean, when you made the decision not to take PAC money, that must have been like, Already, it's going to be very difficult to figure out how to do this financially. And then also, we're going to handicap ourselves in some ways. But it's like, all right, we're going to make it. The integrity is going to be there, but the practicality is going to be even harder to figure out. That's right. Well, and at first, so so if we think back to the primary in 2018, where most people did not consider me a very viable candidate because I was running against a former incumbent Democrat who told me he wasn't going to run, but still was doing that nonetheless. It, I, it wasn't that I was probably going to get corporate PAC money, but I didn't know that. <laughs> so when we made the decision to say, well, we're not going to take corporate PAC money, that was in line with my own values. But then it, it, it what happened when I won the primary was that corporations did reach out to me and they were offering me p- corporate PAC money. And I remember the first meeting we had, and it was with my finance director, who's now my campaign manager, Dave. And we were in D.C. and we were talking and we didn't really know what the meeting was about and and the, the CEO of the company said, oh, all candidates say they're not going to take corporate PAC money, but once they get into office, they do it. And so you're going to do that, right? And I looked at him and said, no, because that would be lying. Right, yeah. And he, he, I mean, the meeting ended not too, not too far after that. And we left and Dave we stepped outside and Dave looked at me and he said, we just, we actually rejected corporate PAC money. We just did it right there. And he said, I'll be honest. I was curious to see what you were going to say to that guy, because I think it would be really easy to say, Oh, sure. Maybe we'll do that. But, but it was, it's the right thing to do. And, and I'm not going to, I tell people this, I tell unions this, I tell groups in Omaha this all the time and in the district that I'm not going to do one thing. I'm not going to tell you one thing and do another. Um, you're you're going to know where you stand, where I stand on things, and we're not always going to agree. And I think it's crazy for any candidate or elected official to say that they're going to listen to everybody and, and do something that everyone's going to be happy with. That That's never going to happen. We're not always going to agree on things. But I do believe in transparency, and, and I believe in letting people know where I stand on issues. And that I I believe in bringing people together to compromise to solve problems. That's what I've done for my whole career. But that doesn't mean compromising your values. And I think that's the most important thing for people to know that when you hear politicians talking about bipartisanship, well, that's not just voting with your own party all the time and then saying you're bipartisan, which frankly is what Congressman Bacon does. It's also not about being a Democrat and voting with the other party all the time because that's that's not bipartisanship, right? <laughs> but but what is is saying, okay, there are things that we all agree on. 53% of, of Republicans right now support some sort of universal single-payer health care plan. So there's a starting point. So then you go to Congress and you say, okay, I'm going to find these Congress people who agree with this, and we're going to work on health care together. And so you – I mean, it's interesting because the you've had an interesting primary in both times you've run here. So it's like in both times it's it's not something where it's like you're just stepping in to fill the void. There is an ideological argument happening. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in each case with an Ashford, I guess, and sometimes more. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, how, how do you feel about the fact that, uh, the first time there was the primary, did that, uh, did that change the way that you're approaching the primary this time? Was there any wisdom there? Well, I, I think primaries are great. I actually, mm-hmm. I, I t- we take the primary very seriously. I think that getting ideas out there is wonderful and it, 
I, I think Democrats <laughs> need to practice non-complacency, and there's nothing that makes you more non-complacent than a primary. I mean, you've got to, you know, just get out of the gate, <laughs> start running, and and keep that momentum up. But um, I, I'm I'm really pleased with the amount of community support that we have seen and felt in this primary. People are very excited. Uh, to vote for me, to vote for somebody who has stayed true to her values throughout an entire two cycles now. And uh, and I'm just very humbled to see the amount of support that there is in the district. So the district is kind of an interesting place here. So we have Bacon is running again. And uh, I t- so I talked to him and it seems like in his case, a lot of the ways that he's running or the basic promises of the campaign are sort of like to keep the ship going the same direction. feels like things are pretty much going the way he wants them to. Uh, is it different or difficult for you to both be sort of operating in a primary? We have to differentiate yourself from the other Democratic candidates, but then also still keep the message against uh, Don Bacon? We understand, because we've done this before, what it's going to take to beat the Republican apparatus that is funding Don Bacon. And frankly, they've they've thrown, at, at this point, over a million dollars into his campaign. He's one of the top five most vulnerable Republicans in the country. And the Republican Party is very nervous about his seat. It's the reason they have chosen to go after me so early. They know that I am the candidate that can beat him. They have the same poll that we do that shows that we are tied. And so that is making people very nervous. And so we have been running this race the way that it needs to be run, which is to defeat the Republican apparatus in this district, to flip the district, to also give that electoral college vote to the Democratic nominee, because this president is frankly the most dangerous president we have seen in American history. And somebody who has aligned himself the way that Don Bacon has to this president, pledging never to disagree with him, going to his rallies, endorsing him right out of the gate, and, and voting with him and the Republican Party 95% of the time, um, that is not somebody who should be allowed to represent this district. And your approach to, I mean, the partisan element here seems to be that you sort of reject that blind partisanship in general, right? So part of what you're promising is if you were elected, it wouldn't be something where it'd be easy to predict like, oh, she's just going to vote with whatever the Democratic Party says. Why is it so important to have your own voice? Why is it that that is something that we even need to emphasize as opposed to the norm? Well, I, I've sh- I've shown throughout this campaign, throughout both campaigns, that I'm an independent free agent. Uh, there have been times where my own party wasn't necessarily thrilled about my running and I wasn't recruited by anybody. And I think that's part of it. So I, I am a pretty indeme- independent minded person. There are things that I agree with the Democratic Party on the many things that I don't. And and so for me, it's it's more important to look at a district like ours, to know it and to love it the way that I do and to want to represent it in a way where people feel comfortable with that. I talk to people every day here who are telling me about all these things that they're concerned about. And so and and people in different pockets of the district have different concerns. Obviously, just you can't make huge generalizations about people in general. Everyone's got their own issues. But the best I can do is say, look, this is who I am. I promise to listen. I will be accessible. And I think it's a, it's a shame when we have politicians who aren't accessible to their employees who are the actual constituents of that district. And, and we want to do politics differently. We plan to have all kinds of different ways that people can reach out and have their voices heard. And they're not just going to get a form letter back saying, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Thanks for reaching out. Um, but but we're actually going to listen because 
it's we have to bring politics back to people. And so part of doing that is the rejection of corporate money, right? It's like, okay, people support you. Listening to people helps guide how you will, uh, you know, how you'll vote or what you'll propose. Does, I mean, does the, the actual act of doing that mean to some extent the dismantling of two political poles, one party versus one party, and that narrative sort of fra- framing our politics? I don't know. I think that's a good <laughs> question. But it, it's hard to say right now. I mean, I think that I, I hear from a lot of people, especially because a quarter of this district are registered independents. Mm-hmm. And and we're talking to independents in the district who are and there's all kinds of reasons why people left one party or the other. But, there, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are disillusioned with the parties, too. And then you look at other countries that have more than two parties and they're a mess as well. So it's 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 really challenging. But I think that we need more independent minded politicians, more members of Congress who are going there because they actually want to effectuate change, not because they want to pad their own pockets or not because they want positions of power. And honestly, the the number one question people ask me is, how are you going to avoid corruption once you get there? I mean, people really do feel like um, politicians are are well-intentioned and then they get there and something happens. I mean, and if you look at somebody, again, we'll, we'll use the example of Congressman Bacon, such tremendous military courage, right, to have served our country the way he had. And it was like the minute he walked into D.C., like I don't know if it was like right when he stepped off the plane or he went through the doors of the airport or if he walked into the, the halls of Congress, he, there's just like all the political courage out the window. And and I don't understand why that would happen to somebody like that. I think that um, it's a shame. And, I, and, pro- and part of it might just be perspective that you don't necessarily have the same worldview that I do or that you're not listening to the people in your district or you've just decided you've got this position and you can do whatever you want. But I think there's just a different model. And I'm really proud to see some members of Congress who've won in the last few years who are stepping up to the plate. I mean, if you look at women like Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Katie Porter, Angie Craig, you've got amazing people who have won positions who didn't necessarily come from the traditional political trajectory kind of background and who are doing amazing things in Congress. And I want to join them. What other issues have you felt or that you've heard as you talk to people in Nebraska that you would want to like, what what change would that manifest in if you were in Congress? Well, people talk a lot about climate change and, and, you know, we call it climate chaos and they're concerned about that. And we hear that not just from younger people, but also from people who have any connection to farming communities. And, and while our, this district, um, congressional district two is, is mostly urban, you know, one in four jobs in our state is related to our agricultural economy. And there are a lot of farmers in the district and people who are impacted by our farming communities. And when we look at the flooding that's occurred or we look at the impact that climate chaos has had on people's livelihoods, um, there, there needs to be some bold action taken. And I spent a lot of time in Omaha working on energy efficient, green, healthy housing and know how important it is for families to be able to lower their utility bills and also live in a comfortable home while while also impacting the tax base for that community, creating jobs, creating local jobs. And so I do believe that we need to take bold action when it comes to climate chaos and and make sure that we're tying it to workforce development and to job creation because all of that stuff can be done locally. That is a made in America proposal that that everybody should be behind. But I think the problem is you have members of Congress right now who are saying like, oh, I don't know, some of this is, is person made or, 
you know, I don't know if I believe in it a hundred percent or they, they hate cows. They don't. Right. Well, or then, then you get the other side, right. Where it's like, okay, so anybody who supports something that looks like the green new deal, which there are pieces of it that I think are great. Some pieces of it are not my favorite, but right. That like, I want to ban cows and air travel. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. <laughs> how do you, I mean, how do you get a sense of what policy works and what doesn't work and get into the minutia of that? Is that something where you just had to research a lot once you you know, committed to actually running for Congress? Yeah, some of it was, I mean, a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people in the district and outside and talking to experts. But, but also I'd worked on policy before and worked on it at the, at the state, at the local, at the federal level. Um, I, I, I actually was the one who worked with Senator Mike Johans, Republican Senator from Nebraska to um, encourage him to co-sponsor the Healthy Housing Council Act, which he did. I worked with Senator Sarah Howard to get the Carbon Monoxide Safety Act passed at the state level. And I worked on a number of ordinances in Omaha, including one uh, that eventually led to the rental property registration that we just passed. So I, I've been working on policy for a long time and uh, for whatever reason, have an interest in it. And, and I think that my perspective as somebody who's seen where things do well and where they don't, um, could be pretty well utilized in Congress. It's weird to me how I mean, environmental issues clearly are something that you care a lot about as well. Uh, a lot of times that's framed not so much. As, I mean, it's framed more as like they want to people want to tax you more or take something away from you as opposed to uh, an issue of health. Right. I mean, so much of environment is tied to the health that you have either from, you know, uh, whether it's how hot it is, whether it's how poisoned land or water is. Yeah. And it seems like those are very simple things, like wanting to have clean air, water, and land. <laughs> don't On its face, is not that controversial. Is, would you say that, that is, that's become a polarized issue because of an actual ideological problem? Like, do... Is it actually anti-conservative to oppose environmental regulation? Well, it's funny because it used to be that the Republican Party was the party of environmentalism, and something changed over time. But, you know, when when the water crisis in Flint happened, I went to Flint with a friend of mine who had worked in the mayor's office in Newark, and we had we worked in healthy housing together, and we went up there and we talked to people who had been working inside the homes that were impacted by by the water issue, and that community was annihilated by this and we still haven't seen the the outcomes of what poisoning that many children as as little kids is going to have on them Um, the long-term impacts of lead poisoning are devastating to individuals families and communities and we've seen it here in omaha too with the superfund site we're still the largest residential superfund site in the country because of lead poisoning and there's something really wrong with um, communities where the leadership doesn't take this seriously. And and when you look at what happened in Flint and the fact that really nobody was held responsible for the crisis, despite the fact that there were leadership decisions made that, that caused people to be poisoned, um, and, that, and that a city like Omaha, where we have 17,000 lead service lines, could be Flint with the change of a water source or one bad leader. Um, and so these are things that impact all of us. I mean, the, the stuff that that's happening when it comes to climate change does have an impact on all of our, in our health. I mean, asthma rates in Omaha keep going up and there's a number of things that, that can be attributed to that. It's unhealthy housing, but it's also poor air quality. It's also where we tend to build lower income housing 
tends to be near industrial sites. And, um, and we need to start looking at things from a more proactive stance. And when we're planning cities, we need to actually be thinking about the health of the community and the health of all of us. Because what we know is that when you have a significant number of people in our own community who are unhealthy, that impacts all of us. And obviously, the coronavirus is bringing that to light more than ever. Absolutely. I, I remember just even sometime this year, uh, Bernie Sanders was talking about proposing national water, drinking water standards. And it didn't even occur to me until then that we don't have those. And stuff like that just seems like that, it's weird that that's controversial to me. And it's at times it makes me suspicious that we're not actually seeing an ideological clash a lot of the time. Uh, no, I mean, most likely it comes down to money right? <laughs> and, and power. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's why I think it, your, your campaign, you make such an effort to show, okay, I'm not going to be bought in that same way, right? I mean, it's like, that's why that's important is because you lose, not only is there corruption that's very inherent in it, but you just lose the whole idea of trying to even help the constituents at a certain level because <laughs> your, your constituent is not the corporation generally. I mean, I guess effectively it becomes one in a certain level of corruption, um, well, right. And, and things like Citizens United that decided corporations were people, basically. Right. And uh, yeah, there, there are so many levels to this. And, and the reality is, it's not, it's not that I'm going to get to Congress and everything will change overnight. But I actually want to work on this stuff. And I, I have, but I'm willing to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy working on these things, because it's the right thing to do. And it, it's, it's the way that we change the system for the better, because I'm looking out for our kids. I'm looking out for my own kid, but for everybody else's. And I want her to live on a planet where if she decides to have children one day, they do have clean air and water. Seems so <laughs> radical, right? Or they do have health care and they don't have to think about, oh, wait, should I go and have this procedure that I actually need because I won't be able to pay rent? I mean, these are the questions that I think about, and I think that all politicians should be thinking this way too. Um, it's it's not that I have all the answers, but but that I do have that that worldview, and sometimes it's a little disconcerting that others don't seem to have it as well. I think recently what we saw with the the Corona stimulus package, you know, when you you know we have our own Senator Ben Sass saying that he's concerned that. You know, unemployment for people will give them too much money and they'll get an extra $600 a month and it'll incentivize them not to work. And then Congressman Bacon says, yeah, he shares that same concern. Go out and talk to somebody who's getting that income. Are you crazy that that an extra $600 would incentivize that? What about the incentive that you gave to the huge corporations to not pay any taxes? Or what about the tax breaks that you just gave to millionaires and billionaires? I mean, shouldn't we be a little more concerned about that? Like what incentive does Amazon have to do good work when they don't pay taxes? Um, I just think it's they're so out of touch. It seems like you do bring uh, a moral or ethical sense to a lot of what you're doing here. Which, oh no! <laughs> like, oh yeah! Oh, this this is not just bottom line money. What there's a you know there's an element of like is this right or is this wrong? And I mean that gets politicized even too. Where I don't know. I feel like we we just lose the actual arguments we're trying to have so many times. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why like I, when I was talking to Don Bacon about you know calling someone comrade is not a that's not a functional way to debate an issue. Like if there's a clash of what you actually think, then that's worth hearing that clash. Like the debates that get set up a lot of the time, it's just like it's, it's designed to have two people talking past each other instead of having a conversation. Have you had a chance to talk to Don Bacon about anything, uh, any political issue in any sort of like real conversational way? I haven't. We, 
um, I mean, obviously we had debates in, in 2018 and although even debates aren't really debates these days, you know, right. it's just like you each say something and then somebody says something back. Right. Um, but no, we've never really sat down and talked through these things. Uh, we did, we, we did meet up at a coffee shop once accidentally and, and it, we, I mean, we had a very nice conversation. I, I don't. I don't, I, 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 it would be so hard to know if we actually agree or disagree on things because I, I, I just don't really get a sense of who he is. He, he t- talks about one thing. He talks about bipartisanship. He talks about how he's a, a, the right fit for this district because he won. But all I do, all I see him doing is voting with his own party or putting out statements that are, pretty lukewarm about stuff or or now some of the, the decisions he's been making about how to react during the coronavirus not following cdc recommendations about social distancing i don't really know who he is um, but i'd be more than happy at any time to sit down and talk to him <laughs> <laughs> are there any other issues that we didn't touch on here that you want people to know about your campaign oh that's good <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at my daughter to see if she has any you know i think um, we we have made such progress. I mean, in 2018, we knocked on 200,000 doors in the district. We've made a full pass of the district. I have an incredible, diverse team of organizers and canvassers. My field director is amazing. And, and I do have to give her a shout out because she has really done an incredible job of reorganizing our campaign to fit the pandemic and, and making sure that everybody's safe and healthy, but that at the same time, we're still reaching out to voters. Um, she is also a, a DACA recipient. And so for for her and for our campaign team, this election is pretty personal. She went before the Supreme Court during the DACA hearings, and she's been very vocal about her concerns about the way that uh, DACA recipients are treated in this country. And, and so that is another one of my priorities. I believe that we need to pass a Clean Dream Act and and I want to get to Congress and do that for her and for others like her because um, I see what valuable contributing members of our society she and and others are and the fact that they're still in limbo is is just disgraceful when we think about um, you know the the way you know it's so un-American what we've done to our dreamers and. We really need to make sure that that we have a Clean Dream Act that's codified and allow them a, a pathway to citizenship that, you know, keeps them from living in the shadows and being afraid. But um, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really proud of the way that my team has responded to the crisis, and I'm very very grateful to the supporters in the district who continue to donate and continue to want to be involved. And we have a lot of people making phone calls for us. So it's been it's been hard because there's so many needs in the community right now. I'm I'm still really nervous about the the small businesses, the restaurants, the workers who are suffering. I talk to people every day who've just been laid off and it's really hard. Um, but I'm also very proud to see that so many people have continued to support our campaign, maybe even more than they were before, because what they've seen is a lack of leadership coming from the president, coming from um, our congressman, and they're, they're ready for something different. Well, thank you so much for talking to me again today. Thank you for having me. And now we're going to hear from Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt, who wrote a very helpful primer on how mail-in voting works that was published in the Omaha World Herald. Here is Senator Hunt. Hey, everybody. This is State Senator Megan Hunt from District 8. 
and I represent the neighborhoods of Dundee and Benson and the areas around Keystone and Memorial Park. And I wanted to tell you all a little bit about vote by mail in Nebraska. So across many platforms from Facebook and Twitter to my email to conversations with my own family members, I've heard a lot of questions and confusion about voting by mail in Nebraska. So I wanted to offer some clarity to the thousands of Nebraskans who, like me, will be voting by mail for the first time in 2020. Um, and I wanted to respond to some of the most common questions I receive. OK, the first question, how do I vote by mail? The Secretary of State has sent vote by mail applications to every Nebraska voter, and that is really great news. If you want to vote by mail, you have to fill out the application and return it to your county election commission by fax, email, or regular mail by May 1st. You can also take a picture of your application or scan it and email it to your county election official. If you've misplaced your application or you didn't receive one, you can also access vote by mail applications online. Okay, the next question, what if I don't have a printer? If you can't find someone to help you print off the vote by mail application, call the election official in your county and they will send you an application in the mail. Another question I get is, isn't this a lot of stuff to be mailing out? What if I don't have stamps? So to be clear, these are the only two things that you need to send to your county election official. First of all is your application to vote by mail and second, your completed ballot. So that's just two things you have to mail in or send in. And note that both the application and the returned ballot require a stamp because postage in Nebraska is not included. However, there are ways to return both your application and your ballot without a stamp. For your application, you can take a picture or scan it and then email it to your county election official. And once you receive your ballot, you can drop your completed ballot in its envelope at a Dropbox location without a stamp. Every county has a ballot drop box, and they have at least one on the Nebraska Association of County Officials, and the Secretary of State has paid for every county to have a drop box, so you can drop your ballot there without a stamp. Also, this isn't something that the USPS or the Election Commission publicizes, but if you put a ballot in the mail without a stamp, they will return the ballot and they will get it to the Election Commission. So. You know, if that's something that you need to do, that's always an option. But the best thing to do is mail it in with a stamp. And if you don't have a stamp, just drop the completed ballot in its envelope at a Dropbox without a stamp. Next question, who is allowed to vote by mail? Easy. In Nebraska, any voter may request a vote by mail ballot, period. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to write an explanation about why you need uh, to vote by mail. You can just request one and you will get a ballot. Next question, is vote by mail the same thing as early voting? Yes, vote by mail, vote at home, early voting, and absentee ballot all refer to the same thing in Nebraska. All right, the next question is, will I still be able to vote in person? Right now, the plan is to allow in-person voting in Nebraska, yes. The Secretary of State and his very experienced, very wonderful elections team have thought this through and they've put many precautions in place to protect poll workers and voters who do choose to vote in person. I have never voted by mail myself. Uh, in the past, I have always voted in person because I love getting the sticker, I love taking the ballot selfie, and I love the excitement of being at the polls on election day. But this year, I'm gonna be casting my vote from home. I requested a vote by mail ballot and I'm gonna be voting at home and I'll tell you why. Many of our loyal, hardworking poll workers in Nebraska are in those vulnerable populations. They're older, 
um, they have underlying health conditions, and they are at critical risk for contracting the virus. So even if you're not symptomatic, you know that you could be carrying the virus and you could unknowingly spread it if you leave home to go to a polling place. So with the COVID-19 pandemic, the responsible thing for every Nebraskan to do is vote by mail from home. We're very fortunate to have the privilege to vote this way in Nebraska. Many states have barriers to voting by mail, and we've seen that play out in the national news, of course. And we also know that that drives down turnout. In Nebraska, we have to make sure that doesn't happen, and that even in a public health emergency, everyone who is eligible to vote gets the chance to do so. Research shows that the best way to do that is to vote by mail. Next, I'm gonna tell you about a few important dates in Nebraska. On April 6th, that was the day that vote by mail ballots started being mailed out. May 1st is the deadline to request that a vote by mail ballot be sent to you. So if you're planning to vote from home and you haven't done it yet, make sure you get that request in by May 1st. And finally, the last important date is May 12th. That's election day. And you need to make sure that your ballot is received by your county election office by 8 p.m. Central Time and 7 p.m. Mountain Time, because of course we've got our neighbors in Nebraska who are on Mountain Time. Uh, so keep those times in mind, keep those dates in mind, and get out there and vote by mail from home. This is State Senator Megan Hunt, and I hope you all vote by mail in 2020. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. My name is Tom Noblock. I host the show and I produced it. This episode was also produced with Ben Matukowitz, who in part helped us find a new recording studio. Because of the pandemic, we were not able to record at the KIOS building. Uh, instead, we were at Pet Shop in Benson. So first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Pet Shop for hosting us for the day. And thank you to Ben for helping to arrange a temporary studio for us. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. These first few episodes of Riverside Chats on KOS have been part of a series leading up to the Nebraska primary on May 12th. As part of that, you can listen to our backlog of episodes on your favorite podcast app, which include a conversation with Don Bacon, with Ann Ashford, and then upcoming episodes include Chris Janicek and Angie Phillips. The idea is to have a lot of conversations from a lot of the people running. I wish we had time to get them all, but we only had a few weeks. So we'll see what happens with the primary. But until then, get your fix of all the people who want to represent you. Get a sense of who they are, what they're all about. For the next two weeks, we have Senate candidates. So Chris Janicek will be up next week, followed by Angie Phillips, who are both running against Senator Ben Sass. Senator Sass has been invited to the show, but has not agreed to come on it. If that changes, we will certainly feature a conversation with him. As always, thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week. I'm Tom Noblock.